This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Cardiology and Heart Surgery Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Paul Thompson, Chief of Cardiology Emeritus at Hartford Hospital in Hartford, Connecticut. Dr. Thompson, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Before we dive into the questions, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure. So, um, you know, I was born in Massachusetts, Danvers, Mass. I did my undergraduate training at Tufts from which I graduated without distinction, as we should say. I then did medical school at Tufts and was an intern and resident at the New England uh, Medical Center before finishing up with my cardiology training at Stanford. After that, I was on the faculty at Brown for 14 years. I was on the faculty at the University of Pittsburgh. And then in 1997, relocated to uh, Hartford Hospital in Hartford, Connecticut, where I have been the chief of cardiology. And now I'm the chief of cardiology emeritus, which my kids remind me means too old to really be listened to carefully. And I'm also a professor of medicine emeritus at, uh, at UConn. So I continue to see patients two days a week because I retired, I guess I should say, I retired in October of uh, 2021. So I see patients two days a week and I cover the CCU and consults here. And I also work one week every other month at Mass General in Boston, where I work with residents and cardiology fellows. Oh, fantastic. Well, we really appreciate you being here, especially considering your expertise and um, everything that you've done throughout your career. Now, what are you seeing as some of the biggest issues in cardiology today? Well, I think uh, probably the biggest uh, issue in cardiology is a big issue for medicine in general. And that's that I think that there's really developing a lack of trust in physicians. And the reason I think that's true is that if you just look at the response to the COVID epidemic and whether we should wear masks or not, whether shutdowns work or not, and um, and whether vaccinations work or not, there's just, a, there's just a, I think, across the country, there's a lot of lack of trust. You know, we've always been kind of rugged individualists in the uh, in the United States. I was actually born in New Hampshire, where the, the logo is live free or die. But, uh, you know, being too independent and not trusting other people is a real problem. So I think really that's the biggest, one of the biggest problems I see for, um, for cardiology and for medicine in general. I think the other thing is attracting good people. You know, um, a lot of my friends and my children and whatever are more interested in going into finance and going into computer science than they are going into um, medical uh, science. And then the last thing is I think there's a great fragmentation of care. And what I mean by that is that a cardiologist takes care of the heart, and then you go to somebody else for your diabetes, and you go to somebody else for your whatever. Um, and so, you know, there's just uh, there, there's a real dearth of that physician who is kind of the quarterback for the whole team and kind of decided when you were going to have other things done. So I think there's been a fragmentation of care and a movement away from the primary care physician who really called the shots. Got it. That's really interesting to hear and, and think about in terms of how things have changed and, and really, you know, some of the big challenges for patients as they're trying to um, get better care, especially with heart care. Now, how do you see heart care evolving over the next 18 months or so? So, you know, that's uh, Yogi Berra, I think, said it right, at least the tribute to him. He said it was very hard to predict the future, especially in advance, which is a typical um, uh, Yogi statement. But what I really going forward in the next 18 months, what I hope to see is that there's more of a return to normalcy out of the um, the pandemic. In other words, that there are more patients who are actually coming in and getting their tests um, and, and returning to normal care. I also think, 
you know, I've, I'm primarily a clinician, but I've done a lot of research over my lifetime, clinical research, and, and have 500 publications uh, primarily relating to my interests, which are, you know, exercise and, um, and skeletal muscle. So we're interested in statins and stuff like that. But I, I think this coming out of this pandemic is also a, an interesting time to look to see how much did patients really lose when we weren't doing all the procedures to them that we've been doing in the past? So I um, I hope to see us return to more normal care with people getting their more normal uh, preventive care and their nor- more normal interventive care. But I also think it would be worthwhile to look to see if we can see things that we may have been doing before the pandemic that we really don't need to do, um, unnecessary procedures um, that we only recognize are unnecessary in retrospect, looking at how patients have done over time during the pandemic. That's absolutely really interesting to think about. And it'll be, a, you know, interesting to see the results as uh, people kind of look into this and see how the field moves forward. Now, I know you mentioned earlier, you know, the dearth of talent and, and people not as much going into medicine and potentially physician shortages as well as shortages um, for cardiologists. Do you see any solutions to that or any ways that the field could rectify that? I don't really, but I think it goes back to that thing we talked about of the lack of trust. It used to be that, um, you know, we had great, great respect for my primary care doctor when I grew up in Danvers, Mass. His name was John Deering, and he was kind of, you know, he was kind of like a favorite person in town. Um, physicians aren't viewed with such great respect anymore. Now, I don't need to have somebody following me around cheering or something like that. But there is this sense, um, and, and, and I also have great relationships with my patients. I feel very comfortable with how they treat me. But I think there is a growing sense that um, it's not the exalted, medicine is not the exalted profession it was in the past. And so I think that's the issue in terms of um, of getting good people. I think that's the issue in terms of trust. Um, it all kind of uh, folds into each other. So that, that's my biggest concern, quite frankly, is, and, and how do we return to that? I'm not sure how we return to that. Um, I think it's, uh, I, I don't know. There's been a shift back a little bit during the uh, pandemic, as you know, like there have been a lot more people that want to go into nursing. I've heard there are a lot more people that want to go into um, medicine, but you know, the culture has changed. You know, John, John Kennedy in 1960 said, uh, you know, um, ask not what you, your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. But that's gone. That sort of sense that we have a service to each other. In other words, that even getting a vaccination is a service not just to you, but a service to other people around you. That's kind of gone away. So I think we need a little bit more of a shift as a nation and as, in, and as people to where we pay much more attention to uh, not what people can do for us, but what we can do for others. And until that returns, I think it's going to be kind of a little tough sledding. Now, as I said, tough sledding, getting the sort of excellent people we need in medicine to keep advancing the field forward. Now, despite that, as I mentioned, there is there has been this turn back with people more interested in medicine because of the pandemic. Isn't it strange how terrible things have, um, you know, some deal of a silver lining? Um, but I, I think that's a real issue going forward is, is getting people uh, into the field. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Now, I'm wondering, too, you know, when you are thinking about everything going on today, what are you most, most excited about and what makes you nervous? 
So, you know, I'm most excited about the advances we have in clinical care. Um, I mean, the, the medicines we have, the, uh, you know, now I'm a cardiologist, but, you know, I've always viewed diabetes as a cardiovascular disease. It, um, uh, so, I mean, the medicines we have now to treat diabetes are just quite remarkable. The SGLT2 inhibitors, not, now I, I understand they not only treat diabetes, but they're, you know, treat heart failure, et cetera. Uh, the, GLP, uh, the GLP-1 agonists that we can use to treat diabetes. So I'm very excited by those. I'm excited about the preventive medicines. So those are preventive medicines in terms of preventing the cardiovascular side effects of diabetes. Um, and then also the, the constant medicines we get in um, in, in lipid management, uh, uh, you know, uh, like for example, in Clizarin, uh, you know, a, a PCSK9 inhibitor that you can give twice a year once you get people on on it. And uh, so those sorts of things I think are going to continue drive to drive down coronary disease. And I find that stuff all amazing. Um, you know, when I I finished medical school in 1973. And uh, the at that point, we were taught that if someone had a myocardial infarction, they had a 20% chance of being dead in a year. Now, remember, 1973 was before we knew about aspirin, before we had widespread beta blockers, before we had statins, before we had ACE inhibitors. And now, you know, the, the survival rate after a myocardial infarction is, is, is wonderful. In fact, when anybody does studies on a drug or a treatment to reduce recurrent cardiovascular events, those studies require thousands of people in the placebo and in the treatment group because the, the event rate is so low, which is wonderful for patients, terrible for people who want to get their study done at, at not spending a, a zillion bucks. So those things make me excited. The fact that we continue to drive down um, uh, you know, you could actually think that if we got everybody treated well enough, we could get atherosclerosis. So it was a very rare um, event in most people's lives. So that, I find that very exciting, the, the, the preventive medicines and then also the treatment medicines. You know, interesting. Um, so I'm 74. As I mentioned, I graduated from medical school in 1973. The stuff that's happened over my lifetime. I remember in 1977 being a cardiology fellow at Stanford and listening to Andreas Grunzig talk about angioplasty. Now, I was not very smart. I thought, what do you mean? You're gonna put a balloon in a coronary artery? That doesn't sound like a good idea to me. So I was obviously very, very wrong. And that taught me to really keep my eye open for new developments. But the things that have been developed and the knowledge we've developed over the years, that's what's exciting about being in medicine. Absolutely. I, I love that. I love to hear the passion in your voice. You know, when you're talking about these types of innovations, it's really amazing. You know, it's amazing to be involved in medicine because the things we can do for patients that we weren't able to do um, before. Now, I don't want to sound like I'm an apologist for the pharmaceutical industry because, you know, I understand that the drugs are expensive, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I do think we as clinicians have to take our hat off a little bit to the device companies and to the pharmaceutical companies that have developed these incredible medicines. I remember November 1987 when lovastatin became available. Up until that time, because I, I was doing lipids way back then, up until that time, our treatments were um, things like uh, Atramid, which was a, a you know, clofibrate 
which had been shown to not reduce death rates, niacin, which had been shown to reduce recurrent events in the coronary drug project that was published way back in 1976, and in these biosequestrant resins, which gave people terrible constipation. So lovastatin was a great advance, and it's been one of the drugs, statins have been one of the life-saving drugs that have made my life as a cardiologist um, a much better life because fewer recurrent events. So, you know, that's the other thing. We, the, it's a partnership that we've been lucky enough to have be, between academic medicine, clinical medicine, and industry that have produced these advances. I don't want to sound, you know, I don't want to come across, I know it's very, you know, I, as I said, I have 500 publications, so somebody would consider me an academic, even though I've not been trained in, in research or stuff like that. I've just always liked publishing and doing clinical trials and clinical studies. So I don't want to come across as an apologist for what's wrong with the pharmaceutical industry. But on the other hand, I really, um, I really argue against uh, being too divorced from uh, the, the pharmaceutical industry because it's good, honest clinicians aren't willing to uh, interact with industry, then, you know, it falls to those people who are not good, honest clinicians to interact with industry. That's a really great point and, you know, just really important to think about, especially for um, physicians who are looking to grow and develop in their careers. Now, speaking of that, before we wrap up our conversation, can you share some advice for emerging physician leaders today? Well, um, or not necessarily physician leaders, but physicians in general, I would say to follow your bliss. You know, I was a competitive distance runner when I was a kid. I, I wasn't that good. I qualified for the 72 Olympic trials. But in those days, you didn't have to run that fast to qualify for the Olympic trials. So it sounds like a lot. It wasn't that big of a deal. But I was always interested in human performance. And the human performance interest got me into medicine. And the human performance interest got me into cardiology because in the 1970s, that's the only place or anybody did any exercise. Um, and so, um, I, you know, I, my first rule for everybody is do what you want to do. In other words, follow your bliss. I think that's uh, the most important um, thing. So, you know, my first thing is follow your bliss. My, my, my second advice to people is be a teacher. Now, why do, should you be a teacher? Why is that advice for developing your career? But I call it the, the T4 principle, which is that teaching teaches the teacher, T T T T, um, and I really think that that if you, if you really want to grow in your career, teach. Now, why? Because teaching teaches you, but not only does it teach you, it really changes the environment. If you teach the nurse why you're doing something, she knows how to, or he knows how to do it the next time around. Um, so, teaching your environment, teaching uh, younger people, teaching other doctors is as long as long as it's not done condescendingly and it's done in a way that empowers them is a great way to improve the system. And then the final thing, no matter who, where you are as, a, as, a, as a, either a doctor or as an administrator, I think the most important thing is to be a good listener. You know, um, if you don't listen, then you only have your, your own knowledge and what you think to work with. Being a good listener has, for me, I think been the most important thing I did as chief of cardiology. And let me tell you, I was not good at it when I started. I kind of had to learn to do it. But once you learn to do it, uh, really your job becomes much more interesting. It's not all on you anymore. You can get other people's advice in terms of how to do things. 
Well, Dr. Thompson, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really fascinating discussion, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Great. It was always my pleasure.